0: Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Oh, we've got some great stuff to cover today. So let's jump right in. Once again, thank you for joining us. As always, I publish show notes with every single episode, and you can find them at thebryanhideshow.com. I strongly encourage you to visit the show notes because that's where you will find links to the various articles and authors and even guests that I have on the program and it's it's a good way to spend some time. I have resources for wrong thinkers there on my website as well. It's uh, some of the different news aggregator sites that uh, I've subscribed to to many of them, to where I receive a daily email. Some of them are every single day of the week. Some of them are six days a week. Some of them might be a little more hit and miss. But nonetheless, it's uh, it's wonderful to have. A lot of uh, good information to choose from. By the way, that doesn't mean you have to believe everything that lands in your inbox. It simply means that uh, you've got a lot of differing points of view. And that's the challenge, right? I mean, the, look, I, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, this hour about how uh, we're seeing bias, in many of the media sources, this has been the case for a long time. I mean, I started recognizing mass media bias, holy cow, nearly 30 years ago. And and it was, you know, I, I have to admit, part of it was going back to like the uh, the NBC, uh, remember the crash tests, the side crash tests for GMC pickups? I don't know if you remember this, but NBC, you know, did a, a special uh, Dateline story where they were, you know, exposing, look, this is a risk in in these crashes. If you crash into a GMC pickup from the side, why, the gas tank is going to rupture and the truck is going to burn. It's like the Ford Pinto all over again. The problem was, producers of that segment showed the crash test. Yep, here's the truck. Boom, somebody hits it from the side. I mean, it's a controlled crash test. But what later came out was the producers of that video segment actually rigged a model rocket engine to fire and ignite once that gas tank was ruptured. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I, don't, uh, I don't have time to rig a model rocket engine to uh, my car just in case, you know, so I can prove that, look, uh, if it gets hit here, it's, it's unsafe too. They fudged the facts. And I remember very clearly when I saw that and, and went, whoa, wait a minute when it came out that they had actually falsified their crash test. I mean, I knew there were things that I I was seeing reported on the news that I didn't quite agree with, but it was hard to put my finger on. And then, and then I confess, then I started listening to Rush Limbaugh, who, uh, you know, I think did probably the most of anybody I can think of to get my eyes to open and to realize, yeah, mass media definitely has its own bias. Shortly after that, you know, a few years later, I started doing uh, talk radio and became a host. And, well, the rest is history. But let's just say I've I've been very, very skeptical and very aware of bias in mass media for a long time. Social media originally seemed like a really great idea, right? I mean, I think it's very cool. I'm still in touch with with people that I went to grade school with. In fact, uh, we we keep joking around. Our, our elusive uh, always talked about, when are we going to have our reunion lunch? COVID has not made that easier, by the way. In fact, it's complicated things considerably, but our intentions are still like, it'd be great to get together with, you know, the kids I hung out with on the playground As a as a third grader. Nonetheless, <clears throat> excuse me, social media definitely has a way of twisting things to its own ends. And I want to talk about how there there's been a lot of talk I mean we had earlier this week you know hearings on on Capitol Hill virtual hearings I should say Jack Dorsey and uh, Mark Zuckerberg being questioned about you know what are you doing and do we need to revamp section 230 of of <clears throat> you know the the code to to make sure that uh, that they're not being biased in the way that they uh, regulate their platforms. I've heard people say it, but I've never seen anybody make a better case for it than James Chernowski um, from Libertas Institute. Who says, look, if you you need to make that change, if you feel like they are being biased, and some people take him to task for saying feel, but if you perceive bias in how the social media giants treat certain points of view, fact-checking everything, you know, hiding stuff, shadow banning or using algorithms to keep certain points of view that, shall we say, aren't as progressive or woke as they might like, you know, in the dark. He says, use the market rather than government to counter that big tech bias. This is a piece that uh, James Chernowski wrote for uh, Libertas Institute. He says, Republicans seemingly have been at war with big tech for the last at least the last year and a half. They feel as if the tech companies are discriminating against their political beliefs after seeing conservative sites posts having their distribution altered or flagged with third-party fact-checkers or outright taken down with certain conservative personalities being banned altogether from Twitter or Facebook. However, conservatives, he says, are using the wrong approach to handle the problems they face. Rather than use the force of government to compel companies, he says Republicans should use their market force and leave the biased platforms they decry. Now, he says to date, Republicans in Congress have spent countless hours trying to look at ways to amend or repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. In fact, Jeff Kossif wrote a book on it called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Because without such crucial legislation, the digital world we experience today would look radically different. The critical law provides legal protection from content posted by third parties when companies moderate their websites. However, James says despite the beliefs of Republicans, modifying the law won't solve the underlying issue of bias. In fact, changing the law could result in not less but more censorship of online content from companies who would rather take down content than be held liable. He says, despite their belief, conservatives are actually quite valuable to these platforms. They offer diversity of thought coming from a different perspective that challenges liberals' ideas. In fact, according to a recent poll, 28% of Americans identify as conservative. If a significant number were to start leaving big tech platforms, they'd feel the loss and adjust their behavior or run the risk of losing more users. Now, he says, if these companies don't alter their behavior, it's not surprising that alternatives to the dominant social media platforms would pop up. A great example of this is Parler, an app similar to Twitter, which has exploded in popularity since the election, with the platform having over 4 million users as of November. Now, here he recounts how last week he went on the Moving Forward with Young Voices podcast, which, uh, which I host and co-host, and he was actually my guest, and we talked about this issue. Now, James says, normally whenever a clip is made available, I share that interview through my various platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. He said, I'd created a parlor account over the summer, but barely used it. But he says, I posted that interview to their platform, and it went absolutely viral. With over 1.5 million views, the post had enormous levels of engagement. And he says, my following grew to nearly double my Twitter following overnight. He said, in one post, I discovered a new platform to leverage and express my ideas. Now, he says, looking forward, conservatives should implement the most important tool they have yet to utilize, and that is leaving If they want big tech to take their complaints seriously, then conservatives need to take more significant action. And the reality is that amending or repealing Section 230 doesn't solve the underlying issue of bias that conservatives are feeling. The only thing that achieves is relegating the Internet back to the dark ages. And so James Chernowski says conservatives should go back to their roots and look to the market to solve the problems they face rather than the force of government. He says, "Whenever the government gets involved, one thing one thing seems certain, and that is that everyone loses out." Now, I I too have had a parlor account since uh, sometime last summer. I don't know. I've had it for a few months. I haven't used it a lot, but you'd understand if I told you that to my interest in parlor has suddenly been quite uh, quite uh, resurrected because it, there's no denying. You know, the viral success of the the clip that he posted on there was simply remarkable. And so, yes, I'm going to be much more active on Parler. I would encourage you to take a look at it if you think that it's something that might, you know, benefit you or that uh, would be an alternative. But more than anything, I agree with what James is saying here, and that is don't go running to government asking, please, would you fix this problem for us? Because when you bring government into the equation, you are bringing coercion into the equation. And then everything turns into this uh, life and death struggle. Vote with your feet. And by the way, it it looks like Parler really is a viable platform. Check
1: it out and see for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
0: So, since we're on the subject of social media, I was having a conversation with a coworker last night, and he is among, I don't know, I probably talked to about a dozen people in the last month or so who have asked me, hey, have you ever watched the uh, documentary on Netflix called uh, The Social Dilemma? And I've seen it pop up. I don't, I got to be honest, I spend very little time watching television. Once in a while, I get the privilege of sitting down and vegging, but not nearly as much as I probably would, given, you know, the opportunity. But I think I'm going to have to make time to sit down and watch it. And it's because it plays into not only the idea of, you know, is there bias in, in big tech? I think there is. But I'm even more concerned less less about the bias and more about the idea that social media becomes uh, an an addiction. And I don't mean in the sense that yeah, I just you know I'd, I'd love to go on there and it's it's you know just it's a vice. I mean, like there are politicians and marketers, and the way that social media is set up, it is designed to respond with our reward centers in our brains. Like, you're going to get a hit of dopamine when you look and you check your social media account and you recognize, oh, look, somebody's commented, this person shared, or I'm getting this much feedback. And as much as I don't want to admit it, I have to say, nope, I see the sun. I am 100% addicted in the sense that when I get up, first thing I do, I check my social media accounts and see what's shaken. And sure enough, if somebody has responded or if, if I see that, wow, look, there's been a lot of shares of this particular post. There goes that dopamine. Ah, oh, wow. That feels good. <laughs> the thing that's so scary is it's by design. And that's the part we don't recognize. Adam Taggart has a piece published on peakprosperity.com. It's titled, Weapons of Mass Deception, How Politicians and Marketers Are Hacking Our Psychological Vulnerabilities. This is one of the more fascinating things I've come across in the last few days. And it, if nothing else, it'll give you a little food for thought, maybe a reason to pause somewhat before you, uh, you know, pick up that phone and check your social media accounts again. If nothing else, you'll just realize there's more here than meets the eye. Maybe we should approach this uh, with a little more caution. He starts by referring one of the most watched documentaries on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, an expose of how big tech is manipulating our thinking and behavior in ways both grand and minute. And he says most of the time we're completely oblivious to it. Now, by the way, the people who've told me about The Social Dilemma all have pointed out it's not just, you know, this is not some conservative takedown of so, of uh, social media giants, you know, and this shows their bias. It's actually pretty even handed. But it definitely shows that there is a science behind this that is aimed at manipulating how we think and how we feel and how we behave. Adam Taggart says these companies prey upon the weakness in our cerebral programming, using our anxieties, our hopes and our brains craving for dopamine to shepherd us into performing actions desired by their advertisers whether it's consuming certain content, buying certain products, or voting a certain way. He says this is a massive social issue that we're only beginning to become aware of as a society. How much more control do these companies wield over our thoughts and behavior than we currently realize? And here's the real question. How much is acceptable? And how do we protect ourselves going forward? Adam Taggart says addressing and attempting to unwire ourselves from their programming efforts won't be easy, as any parent who's tried to wean their child off of social media for even a few days or hours already knows. But as big of an issue as this is, he says it's not new, nor is it limited to the tech sector. Marketers and politicians have intentionally been exploiting our evolutionary wiring for decades in order to influence us to do their bidding. This is where it gets fascinating because he explains the psychology of persuasion. In fact, he uh, recommends a book by Robert Cialdini. I'm sorry, let me try that again. Cialdini, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. I was first introduced to this book a few years ago by my friend Connor Boyack. And Adam Taggart says, it's a remarkable book. I highly recommend everyone read it in order to understand the vast minefield of psychological traps being set for us on a daily basis. Cialdini begins the book by revealing how all animal species, humans included, have evolved stereotypical behavioral shortcuts to certain stimuli. And we've done so because life is increasingly complex, and these standardized responses convey an evolutionary advantage, or at least they used to. Now, Cialdini refers to these fixed action patterns as the click-whirr effect. When they're triggered, it's as if a button has been pressed in our brains, click, that causes us to robot like then perform a standard sequence of behaviors, whirr. Click, spot a potential predator, whirr, increase heart and breathing rates, dilate pupils, tense up muscles, secrete adrenaline, prepare to fight or flee. Now that kind of pre-programmed automatic response served our hunter-gatherer ancestors well. Those with a strong click horror response to predators survived at a higher rate than those without. But especially in today's modern world, far from the African savannas early humans evolved upon, many of these fixed action patterns don't convey the same advantages. In fact, they can be exploited against us. Now, a great example of this is the turkey and the polecat. This is a good non-human example, and it uh, was studied by animal behaviorist M.W. Fox back in the 1970s. Mother turkeys apparently have a very strong click whir" response to polecats. Now, a polecat is a type of weasel who loves to eat turkey chicks. So when a turkey mother sees a polecat, even a stuffed one, held by a researcher, she flies into a berserker rage, doing her utmost to claw and peck the intruder to death. But... The mother turkey also has a strong click-whirr response to the cheep-cheep sound that her chicks make. And when she hears it, she goes into nurture mode, feeding, tending, warming, and cleaning them. It's so strong, in fact, that it actually overpowers her programming against the polecat predator. As mentioned, when a stuffed polecat is placed in sight, she will attack it viciously and instantly. But if a recorder is placed inside the stuffed polecat that reproduces the cheep-cheep of a chick... The mother turkey will completely change her behavior and instead of attacking, she will start nurturing the polecat, huddling it alongside her chicks and trying to feed and clean it. Her natural pre programmed defense against the polecat has been hacked. Now she acts in its best interest, not her own. So, what's his point? Well, Adam Taggart is saying, We've been hacked. Now, he says, sure, you're thinking, I'm well, that's a turkey, but I'm a heck of a lot smarter than a dumb bird. Nobody can hoodwink me like that. Well, sadly, says Cialdini, that's not the case. Humans have just as many of these fixed action patterns, if not more, due to our social complexity, baked into our cerebral wiring. In fact, Cialdini thinks we may be even more vulnerable than the turkey, because our species lives in arguably the most rapidly moving and complex environment that has ever existed on the planet. In other words, we need these shortcuts more than ever just to persevere through the complexity. And here's the danger. Just like M.W. Fox discovered he could override the turkey's decision-making, policymakers and marketers have mastered the science of hijacking ours. Now, there's a litany of fixed action responses baked into the human mind. That's the whole basis of Cialdini's book. He details out what they are along with this warning. Those seeking power and profit will exploit our ignorance of these triggers against us. I don't know about you, but that's uh, that's an attention getter for me. Those seeking power and profit will exploit our ignorance of these click horror triggers against us. So we're going to come back to this in a few moments. I want to, I've got to take a real quick break, but when we come back, we'll share a couple of examples of how this is taking place. And I'm I'm going to tell you right now, you will recognize them. Maybe like me, you're going to feel a little surge of horror as you go, (gasps) yeah, that's, that is kind of how it plays out. Not to worry though. You know, it all starts with awareness. We're not exactly lab rats, so we'll stop acting like them.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us in as we revel in wrong
0: think. The goal of this program, which I lovingly do for two hours every day, is to help create a propaganda-proof people. And that doesn't mean who all agree with me. It just means people who are willing to think clearly and independently, which it turns out, in times of crisis, that's probably the most important thing we can do as individuals. I'm sharing with you an article by Adam Taggart. This is from peakprosperity.com, Weapons of Mass Deception. And he is talking about how uh, politicians and marketers have learned to hack our brains and exploit our ignorance to use deeply embedded uh, evolutionary triggers against us. And Adam Taggart says, I understand, some people may not be convinced, so here are two examples. Tell me if this one rings a bell with you. Expensive equals good. He says, a widely held, held mental shortcut is that expensive equals good, and our daily experience generally reinforces this belief. For example, a new Tesla costs more than a used AMC Gremlin. A suite at the Ritz-Carlton costs more than a Motel 6 bunk room. Nicer, higher quality goods and services typically come at a higher price. Now, Robert Cialdini cites an unconventional experiment where a jeweler became frustrated trying to move some of her excess turquoise inventory during the height of tourist season. She tried merchandising it prominently in the highest-trafficked place in the store and incentivizing her staff to push the product, but nothing was working. In defeat, as she was heading out for a brief business trip, she left a note for her store manager instructing that the price be dropped by half. Upon returning a few days later, she was pleasantly shocked to learn that all of the turquoise had been sold. But even more shocking was the discovery that her instructions had been mistakenly misinterpreted. Instead of cutting the price of turquoise in half, her manager had doubled it. And the customers, seeing a notably higher price for the jewelry, simply concluded, wow, this must be more valuable, and therefore more desirable. Enough to influence them to pull out their wallets and buy it. Now, while unintentional in this example, Cialdini rattles off numerous instances where this expensive equals good click, horror response and endless variations on it are explicitly used by retailers to dupe us into making purchases we otherwise wouldn't under normal circumstances. I got to tell you, this one really hits me just because I think about uh, uh, those of us who do services, for instance, voiceover and things like that. We tend sometimes to think, well, you know, if I accommodate, if I just drop my price and look, you can do it like this, or you can, you can do it for this cheap, that actually undermines the consumer's confidence in us. Whereas if we say, I am worth this much, and set that price high, that can actually drive interest. Wow, he charges that, he must be really good. Anyway, the second example he uses is the power of because- When someone requests a favor of us, we're much more likely to comply if they provide a reason why they're asking. And this is the really interesting part. It's not the validity of the reason that matters. Just the simple fact that it's offered does. And we're pretty much willing to rationalize any reason to explain our willingness to comply. Cialdini refers to a study that illustrates this nicely using a copy machine. So when there's a line at the machine, someone cutting to the front and asking, excuse me, I have five pages, may I use the copier because I'm in a rush, experiences a 94% success rate. Almost everyone will allow them to cut ahead. However, when the because I'm in a rush is dropped from the excuse, the success rate drops to only 60%. Without an offered reason, fewer people are willing to give up their priority in line. Now here's where it gets interesting. Pretty much any reason will suffice, no matter how weak or irrelevant. When the script is changed to, excuse me, I have five pages, may I use the copier because I have to make some copies, the success rate jumps back up to 93%. It turns out that the word because sets off a powerful click were fixed action response for humans. It's a mental shortcut that tells us I should do what this person asks because they have a good reason. Wonder why food retailers tell us to buy their product because it's fortified with essential vitamins and minerals. Or why cosmetics giant L'Oreal's brand is because you're worth it. Or why politicians tell us embrace a new policy of theirs because it's the right thing to do. Adam Taggart says they're, they're intentionally pressing the click or button of their target audience in an attempt to get as many people as they can to act in the way they want them to. Which raises the question, how many times each and every day is your button being pressed by external actors? How many times are they successful in influencing your thoughts and behavior? And how sure are you of your answer? He says, by definition, we're usually unconscious of these fixed action patterns. Rationalizing our behavior after the fact. So here's how you counter this. I mean, this is a great article. It wouldn't be complete without telling you, okay, so now that you're aware of how you're being hacked... Here's how to counter it. Adam Taggart says, Think twice when encouraged to act now. He says, In today's society where corporate cartels control nearly every business sector, where 90% of media outlets are owned by six companies, where powerful special interests fund and control our political parties, where big data and social media collect and commercialize our, our personal information, we are subject to the highest degree of the most sophisticated psychological manipulation in the history of any species. To avoid becoming unwitting victims, it's essential that we first understand the hacks being used against us so that we can recognize them and take steps to defuse their power over us. But but he says this won't be easy. Today's manipulation has been honed over decades and leverages the latest science and technology. It's specifically designed to appeal to our emotions accentuate our fears, and inflame our desires. In fact, it's often wrapped in a false morality to make us believe that resisting it is unethical. Take the Great Reset, which the world powers, like the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, etc., are advocating so forcefully for for right now. It recommends a very specific set of actions for countries to start imposing onto their citizens, presented under the noble cause of a sustainable future for the planet. Well, how much of what the Great Reset recommends is actually necessary, or, for that matter, in our best interest? And how much serves the selfish interest of those powers promoting it? We can't tackle these important questions if we simply allow those click-whirr buttons to force us to robotically comply when pressed. We need to recognize and resist the mental manipulation, and only then evaluate the situation and decide our course of action. Now, there's the second part to this. I will not have time to get to it today, but it's avoiding five of the most powerful psychological manipulations. Most likely, I will share this in the... Uh, I, I, I'm i thinking of holding off till tomorrow just so I can create a cliffhanger because I need you to tune in each day. Oh, you see what I just did there? But I'm going to share that second part with you tomorrow and we'll talk about a host of the most influential psychological hacks, including the powers of the contrast principle, the reciprocity principle, projected authority, commitment and consistency and social proof and how they're used against us. Adam Taggart says, as they say, forewarned is forearmed, but by learning the science underlying these manipulations, we can learn how to defend against and diffuse their power over us that's pretty cool I'm looking forward to it and as for this uh, first part you can find that in the show notes at the dot com and again I'm going to encourage you go to my website leave comments for me because I really need your feedback I need to uh, I need to hear from you so that I know that I'm, I'm giving you information that actually matters to you or that's, that's helpful. And I trust that uh, you, you know me well enough you know I'm not going to take offense if you tell me, Brian, this part is a waste of time. Or I wish you would do more of this. I need that constructive feedback because I am trying to do my level best to leverage the time that I spend behind this microphone, providing information that is uh, in- informative and empowering I'll even throw in the word inspiring because I don't ever want you to go away feeling like, okay, well, he's dumped another load of hopelessness in our laps and (laughs) walked away. I know things look kind of dim and and sometimes challenging right now. But I am confident that uh, we were born for this time and that uh, for each one of us, some of our most noble moments are straight ahead we just got to be willing to, uh, you know, find the courage to stand up and get out of that chair and walk forward into the flames of history. I know it sounds scary, but I believe it's the right thing to do. And more importantly, I believe that uh, challenging times like this are going to show us that we are made of greater stuff than we ever suspected. All right, got to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about how getting COVID should not be treated as if it is a crime. Oh, I know there are people who believe uh, but if you catch it, it's only because you were stupid or irresponsible or behaving criminally. Robert E. Wright has a great commentary we'll share it coming up next.
1: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us.
0: By the way, as you uh, visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, as you go to the show notes, you will find there are two links of interest there. One of them invites you to subscribe to the podcast. I would greatly appreciate it if you did because it helps me get the, uh, the word out it helps to spread the message of freedom, free markets, freedom of conscience, private property, uh, personal liberty, that this program is built all around. The second link encourages you to consider becoming a wrong thinker patron. And if you can come up with a dollar a month or five dollars a month or ten dollars a month, it doesn't really matter the amount. It is so helpful to me because it keeps the wolves away from my door and allows me to spend less time working side gigs and more time researching and producing the best content that I possibly can. And I treat those as sacred funds with, uh, with a singular goal of helping to continue promoting this message. All right, back to the show. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the, the prospect of getting COVID is a crime. I think that one of the biggest measures of the sickness psychosis that has taken hold in our society can be seen in how uh, people who catch COVID are sometimes regarded as well. They must have been behaving irresponsibly or maybe even criminally. There's a terrific piece by Robert E. Wright on the American Institute for Economic Research titled Getting COVID is Not a Crime. He says lockdowns, a weird euphemism for locking up Innocent people enforcing social distancing practices like masks, six feet, etc. on everyone is, of course, an affront to the Constitution, the rule of law and natural or human rights. But he says they also expose major major fissures in progressive and conservative thought that classical liberalism confuse. Basically, humans should be able to live and die as they see fit, so long as they don't purposely harm others. Now, he says, according to the COVID age risk calculator, I'm just over 57 COVID years old, which is a function of my calendar age and my comorbidity, being a fatty. According to the calculator, if I get COVID, I have about a 5.6% chance of being hospitalized, a 1.8% chance of going into the ICU, and a 0.28% chance of dying. So, he says, let's round up and call it three in a thousand. Knowing those risks, he says, I still want to get COVID-19. Lots of other Americans behave as if they want to get this over with, too, one way or the other. How can any U.S. government deny us? To paraphrase Leslie Gore's 1964 song, It's My Party, or in this case, my life, and I'll cry or take the chance of dying if I want to. In fact, most of us, when not unconstitutionally forced to stay home, risk death daily, He says, getting COVID isn't a crime, and of course, nobody deserving of the appellation woke would dare blame the victim and suggest it is or should be. It should be a crime to break quarantine, in the true sense of the word, if one has any serious infectious disease, and it is a serious crime, in other words, bioterrorism, to willfully spread one. But how can it be a crime to willfully contract a contagious disease and then self-isolate according to health guidelines? My body, my choice, right? Is it because there's a chance of death? But it's not a crime to commit suicide. I mean, it remains illegal in the U.S. to help someone take their own life, but those who attempt suicide and fail receive help, not a summons. That said, many dangerous activities like snorting cocaine or driving without a seatbelt remain illegal ostensibly because of the harms, like higher insurance premiums they impose on others. But how does merely contracting COVID hurt anyone else? He says the harm is in the spreading, not in the contracting. Ah, the lockdowners say many COVID victims remain asymptomatic or subclinical, unknowingly spreading the virus. The safest thing to do is for everyone to stay home for three weeks, months, or years. But Robert E. Wright says, hey, that's empirically incorrect. And by the way, read the AIER site for ample evidence of the harms caused by locking down but it also fails to recognize that nobody's rights are absolute. While I have the right to kill myself, I don't have the right to do it by flying a passenger plane into the side of a mountain or by firing a rifle bullet through my mouth into an adjacent apartment. People have the right not to be exposed to an infectious disease, but that has to be balanced against the right of others to be exposed if they so choose. Be it out of a death wish or, more likely, a desire not to allow a low-risk event to ruin their cherished lives. their cherished lives rather. So, whose rights should prevail in this case? He says, until March of this year, there was universal agreement that the rights of those who are not proven to be infectious trump those who want to play it safe. And that made sense, because those who fear death more than a lifeless life can join Joe Biden in the basement. No coercion required. Suddenly, though, many governments flip-flopped and claimed without any public discussion or accountability for the results that the rights of those who seek not to be exposed to the virus trump the rights of those willing to risk exposure. Many were suddenly forced to be the keeper of everyone else, like it or not. Just do what you're told, as Geronocrat to Anthony Fauci recently chided. Such authoritarian impulses must prove ineffective unless total and unyielding, and probably even then, will not work, as the Marine experiment shows. Um, You'll have to check out the link in the article to a lockdown experiment that uh, very carefully segregated uh, groups of Marines to make sure that uh, the virus wouldn't spread. I mean, we're talking very serious lockdown, probably second only to prison. They still got it. (laughs) Even the most serious lockdown couldn't prevent it. Robert E. Wright says, consider, for example, why I will possibly contract and maybe die from COVID-19 in the coming days. He says, I desperately need to consult an old physical book for a paper with Liverpool's Andrew Smith that will expose the cause of one of the many mistakes the government made in the run-up to the global financial crisis in 2009. Now, he says, a copy of the book is only 60 miles away at a sister institution that will happily send me the source within two days. But then he says, my local library will quarantine the book for three days for my safety. A waiver is possible, but will take longer than three days to obtain. So instead of the infinitesimal risk of getting COVID from an inanimate object, he says, I'm driving to the sister institution at night, a huge risk in this deer-infested region this time of year, to consult the book in person. I'll be handling the book and a free scanner touched by unknown numbers of COVID-carrying undergraduates and breathing in their hot and sweaty exhalations through a mask of limited effectiveness. How much sense does that make from an economic or public health perspective? He says that we're driving each other bonkers and broke with silly rules that actually induce risk-taking is proof positive that you have it wrong now, but had it right before March of this year. If you sally forth during a pandemic, you might get sick and die, and you need to own that. If you don't want to risk that outcome, stay home. Robert E. Wright says, As states begin to lock down, lock up again, our choice remains clear. One simple, tried-and-true rule that respects individual rights and liberties or myriads of oppressive rules that work at cross-purposes are now certain to be mocked and in the future. Quarantining books, he says. My word. Pretty crazy stuff. One final note here. I know that one of the big divides right now in society is... uh, the over accepting the results of the election or saying we think there was election fraud. I've got a of an article here, rather, by John Howding called Putting the Shoe on the Other Foot. And this is remarkable because he says, for hypothetical purposes, let's say Joe Biden spent the last four years in the White House and Donald Trump was the challenger. What if Biden was the one being dumped from office, despite evidence that Trump supporters engaged in questionable electioneering? What if election workers in heavily Republican areas treated poll watchers the same way they were in Democrat-controlled Detroit and Philadelphia? What if the shoe were on the other foot? Because if it was, Republican poll workers in the suburbs would expel election workers while boarding up windows and calling the cops on poll watchers. The Michigan Attorney General would take the accounts of poll watchers seriously, but instead, she's calling the various claims of poll watchers racist. If the shoe was on the other foot, tech giants would give the benefit of the doubt to the poll watchers. They would permit social media giants alleging illegality on the part of the election workers. Furthermore, tech giants would warn all viewers that claims of a new president-elect are disputed and the election is not yet resolved. Rather than warning, claims of election fraud are disputed. If the shoe was on the other foot, there would be no peaceful transference of power, but riots everywhere and incumbent President Biden would refuse to recognize the election's legitimacy, saying he owes it to disenfranchised voters to fight on. The point here is the real winner of election 2020 is not a certain candidate. It's the new ruling class that has shown its power to affect the outcome. Neither the president nor Congress can rein them in. They dictated the so-called narrative expelled dissidents from the public square, counted the votes, and declared a so-called winner at the end. But for some reason, this is something we're not supposed to see. I think we would only see it if the shoe were on the other foot, or maybe the media would see it that way.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show.